this week on the Backtable Podcast. This is becoming more and more prevalent, and there are more and more examples that you can point to for your diagnostic partners to say, not only does this work, but this could be an additional source of income that we have not looked at in the past. And so I would say, don't don't give up. This is a battle that takes a long time, but if you have the vision and the drive, you can get there. Welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things interventional and endovascular. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on backtable.com. First, a quick word from our sponsors. Want to save time when you order medical devices for your lab? Restock Boston Scientific products seamlessly with an easy, time-saving device. This free solution allows any user to quickly scan and reorder a Boston Scientific product with a handheld device. Then it arrives with free two-day shipping. Users have saved up to five hours a week. Visit bostonscientific.com slash labagent to learn more about LabAgent today. That's LabAgent from Boston Scientific. Now, back to the show. I'm Dr. Ali Behetti. I'm coming to you from Tacoma, Washington, and I'm excited to introduce my guest today, Dr. Jason Brower from Inland Imaging in Spokane, Washington. Jason, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Allie. It's a pleasure to be here. Our topic for today is something I learned a lot about from Jason. It's doing Y90 in the outpatient-based lab. So to understand this concept, I'd love it, Jason, if you could tell us a little bit more about your practice and your relationship with the hospital system. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm part of a single specialty radiology group, Inland Imaging. We're based out of Spokane, Washington. But we have a footprint that covers from Missoula, Montana, all the way over to Seattle, and then down to the southern Washington border. All told now, we're about 115 radiologists. Here in Spokane, where I work primarily, we have seven interventional radiologists. And of the seven of us, there are five of us that do interventional oncology and really specialize in Y90 and liver-directed therapy. That's great that you have so many people in your group that are doing Y90. So tell me about your relationship with the hospital system. So we're partners with the Providence Healthcare System, and it started well before my time with the group. I've been part of Inland now for about 18 years, and about, boy, 30, 40 years ago, we went into a joint venture with Providence Healthcare on the outpatient imaging side, and it really has been a very positive relationship. And the nutshell version of the story is the joint venture was created to really maximize what we could bring to the community, avoid duplication, and really avoid competition that ultimately doesn't do much for the patients and for the diagnosis and healthcare of our population. So we've got a great working relationship. We've really evolved over the course of the years. In Spokane, we have seven imaging centers. We have an imaging center in the Tri-Cities, and all of these fall under our joint venture umbrella. And really kind of the unique thing about that is we have exclusivity within the joint venture for all outpatient imaging, and that's really been on the diagnostic side. So no competition with the hospital. The hospital, we don't compete. It's all about collaboration. That sounds like a great setup. How does that apply to your relationship with IR for the hospital? So it's an interesting conundrum because interventional radiology, we really never thought about doing on an outpatient basis when the joint venture was formed 30, 40 years ago. So it didn't fall under the exclusivity. When we started talking about forming our outpatient center, Well, it's been five years ago now since we started the conversation. We really could have gone down one of two pathways, either doing it completely as an independent practice or the way we ultimately chose to pursue was 
trying to do it under the umbrella of our joint venture imaging center in partnership with the hospital system. I see. So what made you lean towards doing it as part of the joint venture? Well, at the end of the day, I think my mantra is collaboration and really to try to do the best job we possibly could for our patients and for really our community. I felt very strongly that if we could put it under the umbrella of the joint venture, it really removes the financial disincentives or incentives, depending on how you look at it from your lens of your view of the world. So I think that was very important. And I think for the health of the joint venture and the spirit of collaboration, it was important for me to try to get it into the JV. Got it. Well, thanks for that background. I had the opportunity to visit your lab and it's just really, really amazing. For everybody else who hasn't had that opportunity, could you tell us a little bit about the types of cases and volumes that you do at your OBL? You bet. Yeah. So we do anything that really meets criteria for an outpatient-based intervention. When we started our outpatient-based lab, our goal was to take any appropriate patient that met qualifications for treatment in an outpatient-based facility and move it to that location. So anything from our peripheral arterial interventions to our venous access interventions, but really the goal being an interventional oncologist at heart was to try to move our hospital-based Y90 practice and our liver ablation practice and, and really all things ablation into our outpatient center. Okay, and did anything in particular spur your decision to move the Y90 from the hospital to the OBL? Yeah, so there were a couple of different things that all hit at the same time that sort of the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back. And just to touch on a couple of them, for those that are listening that are familiar with the Y90 procedure, there are really only two definitive indications, colorectal cancer and hepatocellular carcinoma. Now, like most of us, we treat a lot of things, quote unquote, off-label. And when we started our Y90 practice 18 years ago, we just continued on with that entrepreneurial spirit of interventional radiology. And whether it was breast cancer or melanoma or what have you, neuroendocrine, if the patient met criteria, we thought that there was a benefit of doing Y90, we would treat them. So flash forward, I think there was a realization that perhaps there were some billing I'm trying to be politically correct in phrasing this, but you know, the bottom line is <laughs> I think the hospital at one point realized that they weren't getting reimbursed on some of the cases. They missed the opportunity to file an appeal. And what they then came back to us and said was, unless patients fell, and Medicare patients in particular, unless they met criteria either as colorectal metastases or HCC patients, they would no longer allow us to treat them with Y90 in the hospital. I see. Yeah. That really limits your scope of what you can do with Y90. It really does. Just on a side note, anecdotally, have you had a lot of success with the appeals for these off-label uses for Y90? We have. And I mean, that's the interesting thing in the OBL setting, knock on wood, we've had zero denials on any of our Y90 cases. And when you break it into- That's really interesting. It all comes down to staying on top of the process. And that's one of the take-home messages, I would say, for anybody who's considering going down this path- you really have to have good, strong processes in place. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So I, I interrupted your story, but that was, so they weren't letting you do any off-label Y90. Anything else that really made you want to make the switch? Yeah. So I would say there are two other main components. The nuclear medicine department in particular, while they are great, the equipment was outdated. The hospital was 
unable to really invest more money for state-of-the-art spec CT scanning. So it presented, I think, a problem when you come down to modern-day evaluation of patients, both pre- and post-treatment. So that was an issue. And then I think finally, really just patient convenience and satisfaction. And that was also a huge driving factor in moving forward with opening up the OBL. We felt we could deliver a much better product, if you will, for our patients from beginning to end. Sure. Yeah. That's one of the great things about working in the OBL, right, is you have control over almost everything. Whereas in the hospital, you have to interact with various administrative types and deal with staffing shortages and things that are out of your control. Absolutely. I think that's why my generation really sees the benefit in OBLs. Not that you and I aren't from the same generation, Jason, but I, we totally are. Well, no, that, that's very kind of you to say, but I think I've got a few years on you to say the least. <laughs> so, okay. So now you've made the decision. You're going to move your cases from the hospital to the OBL. What were the initial steps that you took when you were first deciding to start moving things out? So step one, build consensus within the group. And I had been beating the OBL drum for probably a good three to five years before anybody else in the group really took it seriously. And it's not that we were afraid to do it. It was just so foreign to anything that the group had ever done. We'd been doing outpatient diagnostic imaging for years, but transitioning from imaging to intervention really was, was a big leap forward. Did you have consensus within your IR section first before you took it to the big group, or was it kind of just a present to everyone? 100% consensus within the IR group. I think everybody loved the concept of being able to control our work environment. So no concerns on the IR side. And frankly, even when we took it to the group, they all kind of, it was a, it was a complete non-issue. It was sort of along the lines of, if you guys think you can do it, then let's go for it. And I realized that's an anomaly. Wow, that's, that's so progressive. That's amazing. Okay, so that was, so you had to get consensus. Then what? So consensus number one, then we started putting together kind of a, I would say, parallel pathways, looking at pro formas, including volumes and reimbursements, and then trying to get our hospital partners up to speed and get them bought into the concept of putting an OBL in and, and moving cases out of the hospital. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I don't see, I can imagine there's probably quite a bit of pushback from the hospital when you made this decision because their revenue drops when they move stuff to the OBL. What did you use in your favorite to combat this? Well, it was about a year and a half process that we went through ultimately to secure the approval from our hospital partner to move this into the joint venture. And you know, there, I think part of it was just being honest and acknowledging the elephant in the room. We were going to be taking outpatient cases out of the hospital. It would have an impact. But what we tried to do is package it with what we thought the benefits to the hospital would be. And I would kind of break those down into a couple of different categories. One would be freeing up time within the hospital for true emergencies and for other patients that their procedures couldn't be performed in anything other than a hospital-based setting. Now, I realize that's a bit of green field when you're saying, I think we can do this, but you don't necessarily have the data to back you up. So that, that was one piece of it. I think another piece was a potential independent outpatient center that and I realize I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth a little bit because we are partnered with our hospital system, but the OBL is branded under our inland imaging name. It does create 
a Switzerland of sorts where patients or referrers that might not want to go to the hospital for a procedure would be willing to come to an independent third party to have a procedure done. And so what we proposed was there's a certain number of patients like that out there that we think that we could capture that wouldn't get treated within our quote unquote collective system as it stands. And so that was sort of a secondary benefit as well that we proposed to the hospital. Interesting. And that's like a theoretical pool of patients. Correct. That you also can't prove one way or the other that how many people there are. But yeah, sure. No, I mean, these are all good selling points to the hospital system. Well, walk me through the process from conception of this idea to its implementation. This is going to be a long discussion. <laughs> yeah. And interrupt me as we go with other questions. I literally remember like it was yesterday. So we did our first case in September of 2019 for about a year and a half prior to that. Once we had the group on board, we had been talking with the hospital, lots of meetings about developing the pro formas, looking at volumes, the nuts and bolts that really go into making it work. And I would say we broke it down into a couple of different categories and we can skip through all of the consensus building and just say, we got to the point where everybody was on board. Sure. I think one of the things that we did well early on, and this is my advice to anybody who is looking at going down this pathway, you want to get your payers on board as soon as you can. And we have a fantastic chief revenue officer. And what he did was reached out to all of our payers, excluding Medicare. They have their way that they do things. But all the private, the commercial insurers out there, we drafted a letter. We put down all of the codes that we proposed that we would like to treat. And we sent this to them and we secured their written agreement that they would provide coverage for these codes, these procedures within the OBL setting. Wow, that's really, really interesting. You are the first person I've talked to who's been proactive about that in reaching out to the insurance insurers before starting their OBL, at least that was talked to me about this. So did they give you reimbursement information or just that they would cover it? Well, they covered it. What they did was they said that they would cover it. And we, based on the fee schedule and the contracts that we had in place, we knew that once they agreed to cover it and they would cover it in the outpatient setting, we knew what that reimbursement would be. That's interesting. Okay. So what's, what was the next step? So once we had the reimbursement information, we spent a lot of time going through pro formas, parsing out the entire book of our interventional radiology business, looking at what we thought we could realistically move out of the hospital that would be safe to do in this type of a setting, and then going into a very in-depth cost accounting analysis of what it would cost to put the room in, what type of room would we put in, looking at equipment staffing discussions. And so that was that took us quite a bit of time to try to get to the point where we had at least a clear idea of what we thought we can do from a financial aspect. Got it. Okay. That seems like a, a big chunk of, of what you have to do, all the planning. And then you opened? Not quite. So then we started, <laughs> <laughs> we, we went on a couple of site visits. Uh, we actually went over to your side of the state. There were a couple of sites there in Seattle that we looked at. We went down to Texas. There was a small outpatient lab that we looked at there. There's an outpatient interventional society. And I'm blanking on the OEIS. OEIS. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. I just got back from their meeting a couple of weeks ago. Absolutely. Oh, how was it? Oh, it was, it was so informative. Yeah, I learned learn a lot there. 
definitely recommend for anybody who's interested in, in OBL development. Yes. Well, and I didn't get to go to the meeting that actually kind of put us over the finish line, but we sent the COO of our imaging center company, one of our head nurses, and one of our accountants over there from our financial office. And I think between the three of them, they came back and with the numbers that we had put together, it was sort of this light bulb moment of, okay, we really can do this. So I give them a lot of credit and I think they helped conceptualize the whole process. So we had that going on and there were a lot, you know, I, I keep saying parallel pathways, but all of these things were happening at the same time. We had a couple of really key vendors that we worked with as well to help bring this whole thing to fruition. And am I allowed to mention these guys by name or? I, you know, I think you can just because there's only two of them. <laughs> but um, I, I think I've heard from other folks that uh, reaching out to both of those companies, um, they can really help you out a lot. But I also don't understand what that means. Like, how can what can they help you with specifically in doing Y90 and OBL? Yeah. So in the two vendors, we we work with Surtex Medical, and frankly, we use their product exclusively. And that could be a whole other podcast right there. But sure. You know, this was now in 2019, the idea of doing outpatient-based Y90 was really in its infancy, and they had just hired a gentleman who lives on the East Coast, and he was their key point for helping to build this outpatient Y90 practice. And he helped us with our with amending our RAM license, with our application to the DOH, with thinking through what the setup for our hot lab had to look like. And just all of the nuts and bolts that we don't really think about because in the hospital, it's already there. Okay. So I have some follow-up questions from some of our contributors and audience members about those things specifically. So are there space requirements for a hot lab? So there's not technically... Now, here's the caveat. Every state is a little bit different. And this is where these folks, whether you're using one brand or the other brand, they, they have people there that can help you with that. They know the state regulations and they can help walk you through it. In Washington state, which is where we are, you have to have somewhere you, where you can receive the dose and then you have to be able to dispose of the dose. So a hot lab, I think will have different meanings for different people. If you're actually drawing the dose, and that's what you need to do with Surtex and Surspheres, you have to receive the dose and you have to draw it up. You do need to have a hot lab of source, but you don't have to have a full-blown hot lab that you would think of in the hospital. You need a well counter. You need to be able to handle the dose securely. And then you need a lead line cabinet in order to degrade your byproducts. Okay. But you don't need the, don't need the full setup. You don't need the full setup. And then is the, the RAM license, is that also a state-to-state -state difference or is that a national thing that's uniform? I believe it's a state-to-state -state difference, but either your radiation safety officer or whoever you choose to work with, they can help you navigate those different hurdles. Okay. So this was actually a question from multiple people. And I'm very curious too, who is your radiation safety officer? Is it somebody from the hospital? Is it uh, one of the physicians in your group? Is it an administrator? Yeah. So it's one of the physicians in our group. All five of us that do Y90, we're all authorized users. One of our partners were lucky enough before he went into interventional radiology, he did a nuclear medicine fellowship. So when he joined- so he got tagged. That's exactly right. <laughs> So he is technically- No, no pun intended. No. Get it? Do you see that mom joke I just did right there? He got tagged. I like it. 
And if your kids were there, they'd be rolling your eyes, right? <laughs> so, uh, sorry, I, I totally lost my train of thought. You had this IR doctor who you, who did a nuclear medicine fellowship. Right. He became your RSO. He became RSO. Well, how in-depth is that process to become an RSO? Is it like a month, months, years? Do you have to take a test? <laughs> no, you basically have to either volunteer or be volunteered to do it. Okay. You're e volunteer or voluntold. Got it. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Do you step forward or you step back? <laughs> so yeah, he became our RSO and really between him, we do have, we do outpatient nuclear medicine within our imaging center company. And so the head of our nuclear medicine department also, I mean, extremely bright, diligent, detail-oriented guy. The two of them really have taken on the lion's share of making sure from a regulatory standpoint that we're doing everything that we need to. Okay. Did you have to hire any additional administrative staff just to be in charge of, be on top of all the regulatory stuff? Or were you able to absorb that within your existing structure? We were able to absorb it within our structure, but it was a bit of an evolution. When we first opened up our OBL, we did not have an overarching director and we tried to cobble it together. And then over the course of about a year or so, we hired a director and then she went back and really with a fine tooth comb, made sure that all of our policies and protocols and procedures were documented, that they met all of the standards. So it's not that we were haphazard, but it's one of those things that you learn as you go. And when you look back in retrospect and, and identify that there are ways to do it better and make sure that you're maybe a little more compliant that's what she was able to bring to the table, and she's done a phenomenal job. Yeah, she's she's an all-star, man. So we talked about the RSO, the RAM license. Your vendor was able to help with that. Was the hospital system involved at all in that part? They were not, no. So we did this all independently. And kind of what you're describing to me sounds like it's like a delivery-only setup. So you just have the cabinet for waste decay and the dose calibrator, and you don't have the full hot lab. So pardon my ignorance, but how do you get the radiopharmaceuticals? So we have the dose delivered to our little mini hot lab that we have here on site at the OBL. We do have the ability to draw up the dose. So again, with Surtex, you do have to draw the dose that you prescribe. And so we're able to tear off the dose from the mother vial. We ensure that it's calibrated accordingly. And then our nuclear medicine techs will deliver the dose to us in the lab when we're ready to administer. And then how do you deal with the tech MAA? and measuring it in storage. So we, it's, it's kind of an interesting setup that we have. The site where we have our OBL, we have this mini hot lab, but we don't do any other nuclear medicine imaging here. So on days when we have mappings, the technetium is brought to the hot lab. It's delivered to our hot lab just as the dose is delivered. And then the nuclear medicine tech will bring us the technetium when we're doing the mapping. And it's easy to decide on the fly, do we need to split out? Probably like most people, we use a four millicurie dose for the most part. And whether we're dividing that into separate multi-point administrations for the mapping, or if we're just giving a single four millicurie dose into the common hepatic, we're able to tell our, our nuclear medicine tech that at the time, and then they'll show up in the room into our suite and hand us either one syringe or two or multiple syringes. So that Nuke Med Tech is uh, an employee of your OBL, is that right? Correct. They're an employee of our imaging center company, and then the OBL fits under that umbrella. 
I got it. Okay. So they're just there basically to give you the dose and then they go back to all their nuke med stuff. I guess that brings me to another point. Where do you do your spec CTs? Is it on site at the OBL or do you have them transferred to a different center? That's a great question. Unfortunately, right now they go to a different center where we built the OBL. We did not have the ability at that point to put in a spec CT scanner. Spokane, where I live and practice, it's fortunately a fairly compact city. So the imaging center where we have our spec CT is about four miles away. We don't have much in the way of traffic, so it's easy to get to. The downside is it's a little bit more inconvenient for the patients, and there's there's no way to sugarcoat that. For the mapping procedure, they have to go that same day after the mapping. For the administration part of it, you know, oftentimes then it gives us a little more flexibility to either get their scan, their post-scan either that same day or sometimes the next day, just depending on their preference and scheduling availability. Okay. And for the mapping, I think traditionally I've kind of been taught you have to scan them within two hours afterwards. So how are you able to do that with closure devices or do you do them all from radial access? What's your way to uh, counteract that? Yeah. So I think we probably have a little more time or we're maybe a, a little more lenient on how much time we allow after the mapping, but we definitely try to get them to the scanner within four hours. For the mappings, most of the time we're still going from a groin access just because of the setup that we have with cone beam. It's a little bit tough to get depending on patient size and body habitus. It can be challenging from a radial access to get the type of cone beams that we need sometimes. That could be like its own podcast on its own. I mean, just like if I've, I've never met anybody who hasn't struggled with cone beam with radial access. Yeah. And, if, and if they say they haven't, then they're lying. <laughs> well, I tell you, if somebody's got an answer for that, I would love to hear it. <laughs> okay. But yeah, but you're able to get them within four hours and you're, you're growing. And okay. So that, um, so you do have a cone beam CT in your OBL. That's awesome. Um, and, and was that, that was really important for you when building it out probably because you were going to do Y90s there. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. And not only from the Y90 standpoint, I mean, we really envisioned this center, and we may talk about this a little bit later, but to do all sorts of interventions. And you know, we're doing our prostates here, we're doing our UFIs here. And I think, and not that you need a, certainly for UAE, you don't need a cone beam, but for prostates, I think it's really important. So when we set out to buy the equipment for this lab, it was always with the intention that it would be a full-blown interventional suite. Got it. Yeah. It's nice that you had that foresight from the beginning and you're able to plan that in rather than having to fix it afterwards. Okay. You might understand this question a little bit better than me, Jason, but for dosimetry coding, can we get into that a little bit? Do you use the standard SIR recommended ones or do you use dosimetry software and bill for the RADONC code for dose mapping? Yeah. I think that's a great question. And it's interesting because I think as our understanding of dosimetry starts to evolve, I would, I'll speak for our practice, we've moved past the standard BSA partition model type of approach. And we employ a software package called MIM. And the concept behind that is to really move towards something called voxel-based dosimetry. And in order to do that, you need this advanced software package. And the best way I could think of describing it, it really comes down to personalized dosimetric evaluation of the patient's liver and then the blood supply, not only to the normal liver, but to the tumor as well. And that's why I think both the cone beam is important, but the spec CT. And when you start to look at how you put all these pieces together, you're now, instead of 
guesstimating how much blood supply goes to the tumor or how much blood supply goes to the normal liver. You're actually measuring counts of activity within both of those structures, and you get a much more personalized approach to coming up with your intended dose. And so it's a very long-winded way of saying we've now incorporated this more, you know, the software-based coding and billing into our practice. Yeah, I'd love to know a little bit more about dosimetry, dosimetry codes for the uninitiated. Do you mind just giving like a really quick overview of that? Yeah, and I may start to get outside of my knowledge box a little bit, <laughs> <laughs> but it comes down to with this MIM dosimetry and the advanced dosimetric codes, you can bill for the mapping and then you bill for the implantation. And it's a separate add-on code that you get on top of your supervision and your implantation. It's specifically for this software. Okay, that's interesting. Were the MIM software people able to help you kind of understand the coding and billing for that stuff? Or was it something that you were able to figure out on your own? Yeah, I would say we primarily figured it out on our own. Again, the same partner of mine who's our nuclear medicine guy. It's funny, when I saw the software, I was just wise enough to think to myself, this could be interesting, but had no idea how we would implement it. And I, again, voluntold my partner who is really, Doug Murray is just an incredible guy. I mean, he worked with the MIM folks. They had no algorithm. They had no process for how to incorporate what we wanted to do with their software. And so Doug's been working with them now for about two years. We actually have a research project going on with them. So Doug was really, again, the, the brains behind figuring out how we could really utilize MIM. And you know, when we started out, the IR physicians were doing all the contouring and we just were doing a not great job with it. And we run a- Oh my God, the drawing of the circles. I'm, I would be so happy if I never had to draw another circle around a liver tumor ever in my life again. It's miserable. <laughs> so we actually trained our 3D techs in our 3D lab to do it. And we have one who's in charge of it and she's fantastic. I mean, she can do a whole MIM processing in about 15 minutes and it's- That's awesome. Spot on every time. Cool. Yeah. Man, you got teachable people. I love that. Let's talk a little bit about reimbursement for these procedures versus cost of the dose. Could you get into that a little bit more for me? Absolutely. So the interesting thing about the cost of the dose, and I would say I never quite understood it until I had to get into the weeds, it's basically a pass-through cost. So you get charged X from whatever company you're working with for the dose. And then when you submit for reimbursement, you also submit that same X dollar cost. And you know, for argument's sake, let's say it's $100. It's really just a pass-through. And so it's almost at least under the current billing scenario, irrelevant to a degree of what you're getting charged for the dose because you're going to collect that from whoever it is that you're submitting the bill to. It's all the other ancillary pieces of the process that you don't get reimbursed for on an individual basis that you have to then take into an account. How are you going to set your room up? You know, you've got to make sure that if you're using a microcatheter that it's not the $1,000 microcatheter. Maybe it's the $350 microcatheter. Yeah. Just all of the same economic stuff that goes into an OBL. Right. What about the, all of the equipment that comes with the dose? Like, you know, like the little box thing and all that stuff. 
most of the time the vendors include the box they'll they'll set you up with whatever you need there are some small charges for at least in the system that we use some of the tubing that goes with it i mean those are part of the disposable costs that aren't directly reimbursed so it just goes into the overhead for each individual procedure can you think of any benefits for the vendors for ir doctors to start doing this in an obl like are there any reasons for them to support it I think there's a lot of reasons for them to support it. Number one, just using our own experience as an example, I am sure there are other interventionalists out there that are being limited in the types of diseases that they can treat. I think, you know, we all know that moving patients through a hospital is challenging. We know that sometimes it's not as expedient as it could be. Our typical time frame when we have a referral for a patient for Y90 we have them seen within our clinic within five business days for the initial consultation. Our goal. That's great. Yeah. And it's, I mean, that's a whole other, the clinic part of interventional radiology. But the goal, other extenuating circumstances notwithstanding, five days for the initial consultation. And we try within the first two weeks of having that consultation to have the mapping done and the first fraction, assuming that it's going to be a multi-fraction administration complete as well. Wow. Okay. And what's your, what's your usual time between mapping and then dose delivery? Seven days maximum. Wow. Gosh, I would love to have that kind of speed with our Y90s, but you're right. It's just, it's like scheduling people at the hospital, you know, it's, it's really, really difficult. And then requiring prior auth for stuff and how long that takes and all everything. It's just this burden of bureaucracy that falls usually on the physician and the coordination that falls on the physician. Yeah. I think that's very well said. Okay. Well, that's most of what I wanted to talk about. Um, I think we scratched the surface a little bit. I'm glad we got to talk a little bit about your special relationship that you have with your OBL because it's really, really cool. And it's an innovative way to have the OBL in a partnership setting. And I think we talked a little bit about the Y90 and the OBL. Is there anything that I missed that you want to talk about? Let's see. I mean, I think from probably the other piece of this, and, and we touched on it, is really the physician satisfaction. And I will tell you, anybody who works in a hospital, certainly a, a hospital setting, brings something to the table that you can't get elsewhere. And sometimes you just need that higher level of care. And knowing that you have that there, it's, you just can't underestimate that value. Having said that, I have a firm belief that more and more care is moving into the outpatient setting. And it's not just a belief. We see that happening. And for those of us that are radiologists, we see that in the diagnostic world. You have payers that are, right, they're only paying for imaging done in an outpatient center. And so I think this is going to continue to steamroll. I think it's only a matter of time before we see payers saying, why would I pay 2X or 3X to have I mean, let's pick on something easy like a portacath. Why would I pay 3x to have a portacath placed in a hospital when I could pay something less, some fraction of that, to have it pit placed at an OBL? And then on top of that, then you look at the satisfaction, we get to control the environment. And we're seeing patients that are having their procedures done on time, and they're happy and they're satisfied. And it really becomes this great self-fulfilling prophecy. That's so well put. What's your current volume for Y90s? Like how many of these are you guys doing in a week or a month? It varies a little bit by month. Last year, so for calendar year 2021, we did just about 100 doses of Y90. 
And so there are some months where it's a little bit more, a little bit less. This year, where my personal goal was to increase that volume. You know, we were shooting for about a 6% increase. I think we're going to get that and hopefully a little bit more. And part of it is just, I think, getting the word out that we have this technology and we have the ability to treat people in the community. And part of it, unfortunately, is just sad commentary on the state of cancer in our patient population. It's just more and more prevalent. Yeah, absolutely. And what's the response been from the oncologists with your with the new services that you're able to provide? I think they've been really happy. You know, we always tried, even when we were providing the service in the hospital, we tried to be as expeditious as we could in getting patients through in a timely fashion. But now we have 100% control over that. I think we hit that rough patch where we were unable to treat certain tumor types for a while. And I think they were really happy to know that that hurdle was removed. So in general, we've had universal support, both from the employed oncologists and from the independent. There are a couple of large independent practices, oncology practices here in town. And we're able to provide support and care for both of their patients, both of those groups' patients. That's fantastic. And they've been great partners in this whole process as well. Yeah, you gotta you gotta love oncologists, right? Yeah. <laughs> Any other advice you have for maybe young career IRs that are interested in starting this in their own practice um, or other folks that are looking to expand Y90 into their OBL? So I guess my first piece of advice is don't give up. As I started by saying, our group is an anomaly in the sense that we had universal support from our diagnostic colleagues to move forward with this process. And I talk to a lot of people. I meet with a lot of radiology groups. I know that is the exception. Our, our example is the exception, not the norm. But having said that, this is becoming more and more prevalent, and there are more and more examples that you can point to for your diagnostic partners to say, not only does this work, but this could be an additional source of income that we have not looked at in the past. And so I would say, don't, don't give up. This is a battle that takes a long time, but if you have the vision and the drive, you can get there. What's in the future for Inland Imaging? What's the next frontier for, uh, for your OBL? Yeah. So, you know, great question. Really excited. So we're starting a, a Theranostics program and this was all new to me as well, but basically it's the different spinoff of Y90, if you will, is taking radioactive substances and attaching them to peptides. And we're looking at Lutathera right now. We're getting ready to start our first Lutathera administration here. What is Lutathera? I don't know what that is. Yeah. So it's for neuroendocrine patients that have metastatic disease and you take this radioactive substance and you attach it to a protein and I'm going to butcher the entire, the science behind <laughs> it, but you know, it's an infusion. Talk to me like I'm a toddler. Explain <laughs> it to me like that. <laughs> so it comes down to if the patient has metastatic neuroendocrine cancer and they're symptomatic and they meet criteria, which is basically making sure that on PET and a dotate spec scan, they have disease that you can see they come in, they get an infusion of amino acids, they get an infusion of this radioactive substance, and they do that two times, three times, and they get some follow-up scans, and the results have been phenomenal. Oh, cool. It's an arterial infusion? It's a venous infusion under a radioactive license. So we're doing it here in our OBL because we've got the hot lab. You have to have the AUs in order to do it. So we're doing that. And then there's a prostate and similar type of substance, but for prostate cancer that's out as well. Yeah. 
Awesome. Well, Jason, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and talking with us. I learned a lot. Thank you for educating me about a topic that I, I just am really interested in. I'd love to do more of. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team lead is Kieran Gannon with support from Caleb Hodson, Josh McWhorter, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Ann Dang. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.